This message is a product of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. We thank you for engaging this conversation. Messages like this one are great resources to help us grow, but they cannot replace being a part of a local church. If you're not actively a part of a church, we encourage you to find one near you that fits you, visit it, and get involved. And we hope this message gives life to you today. Enjoy. My name's Kevin. I'm one of the pastors here at Vortex. So, uh, such a great honor to have you with us today. Uh, today, we're starting a brand new series. It's called How to Be Rich. What a rather ambitious title of a series, right? In the past, we've had series like Sabotage, you know, the, the how you're uh, killing your relationships or friending, how to promote healthy friendships. But here today, we're starting a series called How to Be Rich. Rich and really, I just want to ask. We get ready to start this. Tell you that that we didn't we didn't come up with that. I'm going to take you to the passage that we're going to anchor the next few weeks in, and it really comes out of a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to young Timothy. Now, a lot of the the epistles in the New Testament, the books that are that are there, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, those ones that come after Acts are letters that were written to churches or to people. And first and second Timothy are letters that were written to a young guy named Timothy. He was pastoring churches and his mentor, the Apostle Paul, from a great distance is writing him to coach him up, right? Because he needs instruction and help and So the Apostle Paul is the guy who's providing that for young Timothy. And at the very close of that first letter, he does something that's interesting. He includes this little passage that is directed at the people that are wealthy and how young Timothy should instruct them. Now, I'm not here today to argue whether you're rich or not. Some of us would say we're not. Some of us would say we are. We'll talk about that maybe in the next few weeks. But I want you to see what the Apostle Paul says about wealth and riches. 1 Timothy 6, verse 17. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor put their hope in wealth which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Now, let's just start there. In this very moment, as he opens up this topic of conversation, he, he says, listen, there's a, there's a big issue at work. The issue is where, where have you placed your foundation? Where do you find your hope? And, and instruct them. Let's just kind of get this out of the way. Instruct them. This is a fundamental decision in the gospel that you're not going to find your hope. You're not going to anchor your hope in the wealth that you have, but you're going to anchor the hope that you have in this life in God. And then he says this in verse 18. Command them to do good. To be rich. In good deeds. And to be generous and willing to share. To be rich in good deeds. See, one of the things that we have to choose to do is we have to allow God sometimes to open our perspective on something. And that word rich, much like a lot of the words that are buried into the text of Scripture, we read that word like we would read it from a headline. 
because we read English and that's the way that we read. And we honestly, we should read it that way. But the scriptures were written in different languages. The New Testament, primarily in Greek, the Old Testament, primarily in Hebrew. And they all have their own little nuances. But the nuance of Greek in the New Testament is that the words that are contained there often mean something a little different than the words that we read it to be. You see, when we read rich, Merriam-Webster's dictionary defines rich as an adjective. It's it's a word that would describe something else. And rich is given three definitions. The first one is having a lot of money or possessions. That's why we would look at a dude and go, that's a rich guy. That's a rich dude right there. Or that's a rich woman. That's a rich family. They have lots of money or possessions. The second definition is to be very expensive or beautiful or impressive and that car is rich that pie you made me that junk is rich right it's 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 got a wealth inside of it and the last thing is having a large amount of something and some of you would say well I may not be rich in and in and, and money, my, my bank accounts don't look that good, but I am rich in, in love. I am rich in, in family. I am rich in friends. See, when we talk about rich, we talk about amounts. But the Bible doesn't really talk about that as much. The phrase that just comes out of that that thing is so it's so very different in the Greek text. And, 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 and I want to open this today by, by kind of sharing something with you. It's that if we're, we're going to make a commitment to follow Jesus, we have to allow God to redefine terms that exist in our lives. We have to let God reshape the way that we understand some things. Here, here let me give you a few examples of those. You see, primarily in our culture, because of our language, when we talk about love, we often talk about affection. I love you. I want to give you a hug. I'm going to kiss you on the cheek. I love you. You're so special. Right? But see, while God is affectionate with us, let's go back to that, like, verse you you probably have uh, cross-stitched at home on the wall somewhere. You memorized it in VBS or in Sunday school when you were a kid. God loved the world, so he gave his son. Love is a commitment. It is something that that is a verb. It is not an adjective. It's something that we do. It's not how you, you feel about something. It's something you've decided. So when you look at your spouse and you say, I love you, that's not a, I love you if it feels good today. That's a, I love you when it feels bad. And I'm committed to you. And in that regard, God has reshaped the way that we think about commitment. I mean, in our culture, when we think about commitment, we think about it in terms of contract. If you do what you're supposed to do, I will do what I'm supposed to do. In marriage, we often call that the 50-50 contract, right? Think about it. You do your part, I do mine, we're all together. But how many of y'all know that no woman... It's going to be satisfied with half a man, right? It just don't work out that way, does it? 
See, commitment is exactly the way God shaped it for us. It's 100%. It's all in. God said, look, I'm going all in for you. Here's my son, the greatest treasure I have. I will give everything to be reconciled to you. It's not conditional. It's not contractual. It's commitment. We have to let God redefine rich for us too. And this phrase that the Apostle Paul used here in in 1 Timothy 6, the phrase be rich in good deeds, the word rich refers to an ever-increasing abundance. It is not describing an amount, but the fact that there is an increasing abundance of this thing. Can I tell you that in America, we're pretty bad at being rich. We're, we're, we're not very good rich folks. We know this because America makes us every year file tax returns. The median household income in the United States is somewhere around $50,000 a year. The average family gives away 6% of that income. Can I tell you something? God's not impressed with dollar amounts. He is definitely impressed with percentages. That's why God says, I want you to dedicate that first tenth as a tithe. You know what happens if you fast forward in the growth of a family or give a big promotion and the growth of that family's income goes from 50000 to $200,000 a year? The percentage on average goes from 6 to 4%. They're giving more money, but they're giving less percentage. See, we're not very good at being rich. And over the next few weeks, it's my prayer that we would begin to look at that ever-increasing abundance in a different way. Because the Apostle Paul says, teach them to be rich in good deeds. Good de- you know what that word deeds means? It means two things. It means a business transaction where I go into the dry cleaners and I drop my five and I get my soup. Right? I paid. There's a transaction that happened, right? I go into the drugstore and I drop my $100 and I get my prescription, right? Y'all been there before, right? There's a transaction, but the word that's used there, and this is the beautiful thing about the Greek language, is that oftentimes words don't simply mean something. It means a transaction or an accomplishment. It's something that we've paid for or something that we've done. And the Apostle Paul says, hey, teach those that have the means to be rich in the things that they give, in the things that they do. Not just giving from the purse, but giving from their time. So here's our prayer over the next few weeks. That we want to allow God to redefine the way that we understand being rich. And here's what I want. Some of y'all, right now, at this moment in your life, we ask the question, are you rich, are you wealthy? You go, no, I'm not. But one day you will be. By God's providence and His care and understanding, He will be generous with you, and one day you will be wealthy. And over the next four weeks, I want you to practice for that day.
I want you to practice what it would look like. How generous could you be? See, you know, when we started our church a few years ago, a lot of churches approach local missions and giving in this way that they say, well, there's needy people in our area, so why don't we start a food bank? And there's um, some kids that need some care, so why don't we start an after-school program? And, and all of these things. And we decided that why would we come in and try to recreate things that other people are already hitting home runs doing? Why would we ever try to compete? Why wouldn't we create partnerships? And so over the past few years, you've seen some of those partnerships emerge where we've helped to feed, where we've helped to take care of those who were less fortunate than us, where we've helped to provide um, resources for those who have uh, found out that they're uh, pregnant and they weren't expecting it. Th- those, those kinds of uh, people that are in our community, that are hitting home runs missionally. We want to support them and create partnerships because here's the thing. When, when our community sits back and looks at Vortex Church and they evaluate who we are and what we do, I don't want our church to be known by silly little mantras. I don't want us to be known and separated by our theology. If I could pick anything that we could be known by, it would be that we would be known by our generosity. That people would sit back and maybe there would be a business owner in our community that would look and say, you know, I'm not sure that I I believe in this Jesus thing. um, But man, I love to hire people from that church. Because when they come in, they they work hard and they give and they're generous and they're, they're, they're great team players. And I'd love for workers in our city to be able to say, hey, you know, I I really want to go to work for someone from Vortex. Because those people, they pay their people really well. They serve them really well. They take care of them. I, I want our church, if I could pick anything for it to be known as, to be known as a generous church. And here's why. If you step back into the first century when Jesus was teaching, the teachings of Jesus reshaped the way that we understand generosity. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to take you through three separate teachings from Jesus, and then I'm going to show you today how they impacted the church as it began to emerge in the first, second, and third century. All right? See, in that time period, Jesus was teaching the way that we understand generosity today was not present in that age. All right, I, it was kind of the best way to describe giving and being generous in those time periods could be described in this term. If you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. People would give, people would be generous, but they would be generous to people who could then be generous back to them. So here's what happened is those who had got more. Those who people, the people who had authority and means and resources were the people that were, everyone was lined up to help them because they needed their help too. But Jesus shows up and teaches a drastically different paradigm of generosity. We're going to get started today by looking at what Jesus taught in Luke 10. In Luke 10, Jesus tells 
a story. It's really best understood as a story of racial aggression. As the story begins, we find a guy, he's a Jew, and this story is kind of set near Samaria. Being a Jew, Jews and Samarians were a lot like blacks and whites in the South in the 1960s. There was a high degree of segregation between those two racial groups, those two ethnic groups. And along the side of the road, there is a Jew that has been beaten, almost dead, and has been left to die. And Jewish priests walk by, and I'm like, I'm not going to touch him. I'm not going to get dirty. I'm not going to get involved with this. And then a Samaritan, all right, the one that a Jew would have never touched, a Jew would have never been involved with, a Samaritan sees him, gets him up, cleans his wounds, takes him to an inn, pays for his lodging and for his food, promises to return in a few days. Whatever he needed, he was going to pay for it. Jesus asks a question to his crowd. Well, you tell me who the, na- who the neighbor was. Who, who was the neighbor to this man? See, he redefined what it meant to be a neighbor. And he began to redefine what generous looked like. The first thing in your notes under that category today is Jesus redefines generosity and shows us that we should give without thought of what we get. We should give without thought. There, there are so many of us, even in our culture today, that generosity is always linked to something that we feel like we can get. And Jesus begins to open up a paradigm of generosity that is so different than what the world understands. So fast forward to John 13. In John 13, as the chapter opens, there's this Really powerful moment with Jesus. We know it was so powerful that it would shape the way his disciples looked at him and leading and serving. And it opens, look at this statement that Jesus makes in John 13, 3. John recording the thoughts of Jesus. Jesus knew the Father had given him authority over everything. Jesus knew the Father had given him authority of over everything. Y'all ever been in a place you realize, I can do whatever I want? I mean, I don't, I've never been that, right? I've never been in a position like that. I'm, I'm guessing like when you're a kid, you imagine like school principals feel that way. They just show up at school and like, I can do whatever I want to do today, right? Our bosses at work, they come in like they own the place, right? Because they own the place. Um, <laughs> I can do whatever I want to do, right? But Jesus, as John 13 opens, realizes that the Father had given him authority over everything. And then he does something that would literally blow the minds of his followers. See, in those days, as they entered a house, the houses were typically equipped with servants. Some of those were indentured servants, people who were literally legally enslaved, and some of those were people who, who just came in and worked for the families. But, but in, in this case, one of the, the worst, lowest forms of servitude was to be the servant that was stationed at the door because in those days they did not have cool shoes. There were no Nikes. 
there were no Jordans. There were only Mandals. You ever seen a dude in sandals? Right? You know what I'm talking about. Right? And think about, they didn't have pedicures or even really neat toe clippers and all that kind of stuff. Feet were gross. And one of the worst things that you could be assigned to do was to be that guy who was stationed at the door so when people walked in, you washed their feet. And in that moment in John 13, when Jesus realizes he has authority over everything, he takes that basin, he takes the towel and wraps it around his waist, and his disciples start to get mad at him. What are you doing? You can't wash my feet. And he's like, no, I'm going to wash your feet. I'm Jesus. And I love what they say back to him. It's one of those things I think sometimes we miss how funny this is. That Peter says, Lord, don't just wash my feet, then wash all of me. He basically just asked Jesus to give him a sponge bath, right? I mean, like, no, don't, don't stop there. Just get all of me. But Jesus is teaching them something. And this lesson we're going to find is transcendent. It, it really begins to go beyond that moment and shape how they understand leading and serving. Because he takes them and washes their feet. And then in verse 14, he says, And since I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash each other's feet. Oh. Really? Since I, the one that has been given authority over everything, made the choice to serve you. You, when you're given authority over something, should serve it. In that moment, Jesus opens up a brand new way to understand who we are. This is in your notes. Jesus shows us that those with power, means, and authority should use it to make a difference in others' lives. I'm the Lord that's been given authority over everything, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to wash your feet, and I'm going to tell you, one day, you're going to have authority over something, wash their feet, and wash their feet, and serve them. And don't think about climbing the ladder. Think about going down the ladder and serving. Then in Luke 6, in Luke 6, where Jesus really is not very concerned, as I read this to you, he is not very concerned about our self-esteem, okay? Because all of us, when I read this, we're going to feel bad about ourselves. But isn't that good? Isn't that a good thing about the teaching of Jesus? That he's not afraid to mess with us a little bit? Because look at as he's teaching about generosity where he goes with this. In Luke 6, verse 32. If you love only those who love you, why should you get any credit for that? Even sinners love those who love them. Whoa. Whoa. Oh, you're going you're gonna to come to me and tell me, but look, God, look at the fruit in my life. Look at the fruit. I love my friends. I love my friends. Really, really. You love your friends. You care about people that love you. 
I mean, even people who are pagans and have ran from me and have never been transformed by the power of God can do that. And you want credit for that? Luke 6, 33. And if you do good only to those who do good to you, why should you get credit? Even sinners do that much. Oh, yeah, you, you help out the people that help you out, right? So you went over and helped your neighbor move after he helped you move last year? Awesome. Even those people who have never been transformed by the power of God do that. So you give a Christmas present to your parents when they give you Christmas presents? Awesome. Right? You bought lunch for your coworker after they bought lunch for you last week? Way to go. Even sinners who have never been transformed by the power of God do that. And then, in verse 34, if you lend money, if you give only to those who can repay you, why should you get any credit? Even sinners will lend to other sinners for a full refund. Wow. If you'll give to people where you feel like it's an investment, actually you'll get return on it. Yeah. You want credit for that? You want credit for making an investment in this world? Amen. Those people who have never been touched by the power of God will do that. You see, in, in this few verses, Jesus does something that's remarkable. And this is in your notes. He connects our generosity with the gospel itself. Think about this with me. What is the gospel, the good news of God? That God sent his son Jesus to die on a cross. That on that cross, he would bear the penalty of our sins. That our sins, the wrath of God, would all be poured out on Jesus. So that we then could get the free gift of a restored relationship with God. Where we don't have to be punished for our sins. We could live an eternal life that begins right now. Where we're reconciled to God and live in peace with him. His spirit leading us and guiding us every day. And we did nothing to earn that. As a matter of fact, in that whole equation that we call the gospel, the only thing that you give is your sin. So look at where Jesus goes. In Luke 6, 35. No, love your enemies. Y'all excited about that one, aren't you? Love your enemies? Do good to them. Be rich in good deeds. Lend to them without expecting to be repaid. Then your reward, then your reward from heaven will be great. You know what's really tough about that word then? Is that if that weren't weren't in there, we could look at what God just said. And if we did that, there would be kind of like icing on the cake of being righteous with God. But the word then means that that's all a part of the deal. That we have to be that kind of person. Then your reward from heaven will be great. And you will be truly acting as children of the Most High. For He is kind to those who are unthankful and wicked. How many of y'all know that at some point in your life you've been the unthankful and wicked ones? I know I have been. And that understanding as the gospel emerged 
in the first century that we had been given a gift that we could never earn, that God had been generous to us, so we were invited to be generous and began to shape the churches that emerged. In the first, second, and third century, as the church began to form and grow throughout Europe and the Middle East, there's, by God's providence, some crazy things that happen. The plagues hit. And whole cities become sick at one time. Thousands upon thousands die. And you want to know what happened? Those that were in power, those that had means, those that were the authorities, ran. And the Christians stayed and served and gave. And that early church took on the the brand new, reshaped version of generosity that Jesus had leveraged for them. And it began to shape the church as it exponentially grew. Pacomius the Great left for us a a story in antiquity that I think is brilliant. Pacomius was a young man, a young Greek citizen. He was um, recruited, that means forcefully required to join the Roman army. When they came into a city, they took a, a group of young men between a certain age. He was 20 at the time, and they took him. Before they staged them to train them for the Roman army, they actually housed them in prison so they couldn't run away. And while he was in prison, waiting to be trained and equipped, to join the Roman army, the plague hit the city where he was being held. And the army ran. And the leaders ran. And those in authority ran. And as they were starving to death in those cells, a small group of Christians showed up with food and provided care and took care of him. Pacomius would eventually be transported and spend his time in the Roman army becoming a hero, he would, after his discharge from the army, go find a small group of Christians and say, because of your generosity, I have to be a part of this. Let me help. Let me do what I can do. And he became a pastor, and eventually he became a church planter, and he literally planted hundreds of churches throughout Europe. The Catholics call him St. Pacomius. All because when the Roman authorities ran, Christians stayed and were generous. In 313, Constantine signed the Edict of Milan, which made every religion legal. Up until that point, Christians had been persecuted, and and sometimes they were the ones, those were the people who were thrown to be fed to the lions in front of large crowds. But With the Edict of Milan in 313, Christianity was legal. But a little known fact after that is that after Christianity had taken this massive foothold in the Roman Empire, a new emperor emerged after Constantine. His name was Julian. You've never heard of him because he is just a small, tiny footnote in history. Because Julian wanted to return to the pre-Christian era. And he did everything he could within his power to squelch the rising majority of Christians in Rome. He built pagan temples. 
And he wanted people to convert back from Christianity to paganism, to serve the gods of Zeus and those Roman mythological gods that you've heard before. But there's one problem. Christians refused to stop serving. In a letter that he wrote to some of his priests, he said this, these impious Galileans, these Christians that are so pious, relieve both their own poor and ours. It's shameful that ours should be so destitute for our assistance. He's saying, listen, those Christians, they're taking care of their poor and needy and ours too. Later in an article, he would say this, why then do we think this is sufficient. And do not observe how the kindness of Christians to strangers, their care for the burial of the dead, and the sobriety of their lifestyle. Why don't we observe what that has done, that that has done the most to advance their cause? Julian's a footnote in history because Christians refused to stop being generous. And as their generosity was fueled, The church grew, and it went from 120 to thousands and thousands and millions. Because a world that is lost and broken will stop and look when people take time to be truly selfless and generous. If I asked you right now to take an inventory of your life, to look around your life and to label things good or bad. Many of us today would slap a lot of good labels on things. My family is a good thing. It's a blessing. My job is a good thing. It's a blessing. My kids, they are a good thing. They are a blessing. Our home that we live in, what a good thing that we have a home that we can live in shelter. I've got a good car that gets me from place to place. I've got a lot of good things, but let me ask you, This question, what if at the end of your life, all the good things that you have were for nothing? For nothing. There's no dent that's made in eternity. There's no difference that's made because those things pass through your hands. What if? Because I have sat next to millionaires that have died lamenting the fact that they didn't do enough in this world. And I have sat next to some men and women who are thoroughly faithful and watched the wealth that they had. What if all of those good things, all of those things that you would look and say, this is good. What if it was for nothing? What if there's nothing accomplished through it? What what if? What if you could change the way you look at the good things that are in your life? And today you could realize that the good things that God has given me, He has given me to make a difference in the world that I live in. What if 350 people in Albemarle could make that decision that we everything that's good that God has given me, I'm going to leverage it for the kingdom of God. 
What if every one of us could stop being selfish, could stop being self-concerned? What if we could get this vision of being a church that's generous, that gives until it's hurting? What if? Because the first step to being rich is found in how we answer those two questions today. Let's pray. God, God, we thank you that you have been so good to us. God, you've been so generous to us. We've, we've never been able to earn your love or earn your affection. God, God we're, we're so blessed. And God, through your blessings today, we realize that you've enabled us and called us to make a difference, God. God, we want to be the kind of people who are rich in good deeds. We want to be generous, if not for any other reason, but for the fact that you've been generous to us. Lord, you gave us what we could never earn. God, you gave us a brand new relationship with yourself. God, you gave us a a, a chance to start over. And today, God, we just look to you and we ask that you, by your grace and mercy, would help us to receive that generosity with every head bowed, every eye closed. Let me ask you a question today. If you're here today and you recognize that your life is in deficit to God, that you haven't been the person that you know God wants you to be. And there's a bill that is waiting to be paid. I want you to understand today that God generously has already paid that bill for you. He doesn't want to punish you. He really wants to forgive you. and He wants you to experience the great extravagance of His grace. Maybe today... For the first time ever, you would look into the heart of God and see that God has been so very generous with you. And today, step into a new relationship with Him. If you're here and that's you, and you say, hey, I, I, I need that. I need that new relationship with God. I need forgiveness today. I need healing today. Raise your hand if that's you. Awesome. Lots of hands today. So God, today we just stand before you and we ask you, God, please, please help us to receive that gift, to live in the generous grace that only you could give us. God, we love you. God, we just, we long to be the people that you've called us to be. So God, take us, write your story through us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. For more information on our church, we encourage you to visit us online at vortexchurch.com.